Turn with me to Joshua chapter 6. We'll be reading through the whole chapter beginning with verse 6. So Joshua, the son of Nun, called the priests and said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Ark of the Lord. And he said to the people, Go forward, march around the city, and let the armed men pass on before the Ark of the Lord. And just as Joshua had commanded the people, the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Lord went forward, blowing the trumpets with the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord following them. The armed men were walking before the priest who were blowing the trumpets, and the rear guard was walking after the, after the ark while the trumpets blew continually. But Joshua commanded the people, You shall not shout or make your voice heard, neither shall any word go out of your mouth until the day I tell you to shout. Then you shall shout. So he caused the ark of the Lord to circle the city, going about it once. And they came into the camp and spent the night in the camp. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and the priests took up the ark of the Lord, and the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord walked on. And they blew the trumpets continually, and the armed men were walking before them, and the rear guard was walking after the ark of the Lord while the trumpets blew continually. And the second day they marched around the city once, and returned into the camp. So they did for six days. On the seventh day, they rose early at the dawn of the day and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. And at the seventh time, when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. And the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall live, because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But you, keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. But all silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the, sa the treasury of the Lord. So the people shouted, and the trumpets were blown. As soon as the people, of is the people heard the sound of the trumpet, and the people shouted a great shout, and the wall fell down flat, so that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. Then... They devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkey with the edge of a sword. But to the two men who had spied out the land, Joshua said, Go into the prostitute's house and bring out from there the woman and all who belonged to her as you swore to her. So the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and her mother and her brothers and all who belonged to her. And they brought all her relatives and put them outside the camp of Israel. 
and they burned the city with fire and everything in it. Only the silver and gold and vessels of bronze and iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. But Rahab the prostitute and her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And he has lived, and she has lived in Israel to this day, because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. Joshua laid an oath on them at that time, saying, Cursed before the Lord be the man who rises up and rebuilds this city Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn he shall lay its foundation. At the cost of his youngest son shall he set up its gates. So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame was in all the land. Let's pray to the Lord. Lord, we pray for your spirit, for wisdom, instruction, and understanding concerning your word. Lord, we lift this up to you and praise your name. We know that all of these words are from you, inspired from you. And so we, we are hungry for your knowledge, for the righteousness that comes through your son alone. And so, Lord, we pray for that to be upon us, for your word to be opened up. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Now, last time we spoke about uh, when the angel, the commander of the army of the Lord, gave these instructions, how these instructions don't make sense as a plan of attack. These are instructions that are specifically given to show that it is God who is giving them the victory. No brilliant tactician is going to come up with a plan to walk around the city a bunch of times. That's not going to knock down the walls. It's not going to give you the city. But these are God's instructions to show that it is God's victory, that this land is God's gift to Israel. And Israel obeyed despite the fact that it may seem like a foolish thing to do. But Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians, he says, The Jews demand a sign and the Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. I just wanted to reiterate that point because it's strongly displayed right here that what they're doing is not, is not effective in and of themselves. This is the work of God on their behalf. But today we have to ask a harder question because of the line in verse 21, it says, They devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkey with the edge of the sword. And many people ask the question, how can the God who condemns murder allow this to happen? He gave them the law. He gave Israel the law in the sixth commandment. He says, you shall not murder. Even before he gave the law to Noah, he spoke these words. He said, and for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man. 
From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. It's easy to think of that as a prophecy or a proverb, but this is a command. God is saying, you were created in my image. There is something sacred about human life that he wants to protect and honor. It is his image in man, in all of mankind. And he, he gives us the reasoning, the command and the reasoning. This is protecting God's image in creation. And today we grapple with the issue of God's goodness and justice in the face of Israel slaughtering everybody in this city of Jericho. Now, if you're wondering why we would have to talk through this, as how does this help me follow Christ? Uh, there are, I, I could think of about four groups that this will help us converse with. First of all, it would be the new atheists and people influenced by them, people like Sam Harris and, and, and Dawkins and those sorts of atheists. They are really angry about Christianity, and they attack very fiercely. And they're actually not very popular anymore because, well, they're not tolerant, and uh, people don't like intolerant people. But their arguments are still out there, and they're still repeated, and they're still on YouTube, and people still repeat them. And so we have to have an answer. We have to be ready for an answer for people who say, well, your God isn't a loving God. Look at all that killing he did. There's another group, people who are now leaving the faith. This isn't a new thing, but it sounds like a new thing because they're putting new titles on it, like... Christian deconstruction and all this sort of thing. And these are the sorts of questions that people struggle with. People that are walking away from Christianity because they, they have not wrestled with these questions and then they get hit with it in the face and they say, well, I don't, I don't have an answer for that. I don't know. I don't understand. And they walk away from the faith. How do we answer those people? How do we call them back? There's a third group. Um, the people who would just want to cut out all of the Old Testament. And there are people who want to do that still today. Uh, Samantha was telling me about one of her friends who just, you know, is so upset that people are still using the Old Testament. You know, you just got to cut that out. That's all old garbage and trash. No, it's not. This is the word of God. They don't understand God's providence. They don't understand God's justice they don't understand God's holiness and the hatred of sin. And the last group would be confused Christians. Maybe it is your children or somebody that you're discipling. But anybody that you will come across who will read this and think, I don't understand how the loving God of the Bible would, would allow something like this to happen. This doesn't seem like what Jesus talked about. I'm confused. Because if we don't answer these hard questions for our children and for the people that we mentor and disciple, somebody else will. And they'll give them some really terrible answers 
about how religion and God are evil or how you need to cut out the Old Testament. And so the first thing we're going to do today is we're going to defend God's justice and goodness in this account. And secondly, we'll show how this passage points us forward to the, to the Christ that we read about in the New Testament. And the first thing I'd like to address in, is that this is not Israel's war against Canaan. Okay, Israel did not choose this land to live in. God did. In Genesis 12, 1, he called Abraham, or Abram at the time, out of Ur, up in Mesopotamia. And he says, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. He took him from where he lived, and he brought him specifically to this place of Canaan. He's going to give this land to him. Abraham didn't scope it out. He didn't choose it. He was not a thought in his head. God orchestrated this for Abraham. Furthermore, for the Israelites, none of these Israelites chose to go to this land. They, their parents were slaves in Egypt. They didn't have big plans. They weren't going anywhere. They weren't conquering anybody. God pulled them out and said, you're going to this land that I am giving you. This is not Israel going and find, trying to find a land for themselves. This is God's choice, God's gift God's prerogative and his mission. We also see that this is not Israel's war against Canaan, but rather God's war against sin, in that Israel didn't even choose to destroy the people there. God chose that they would destroy the people there. He spoke to them in Deuteronomy 20 telling them how they should treat the people who lived in Canaan. He said, In the cities of these people the Lord your God has given to you for an inheritance, you shall save alive nothing that breathes, but you shall devote them to complete destruction. The Hittites and Amorites, the Canaanites and Perizzites, the Hivites and Jebusites the Lord your God has commanded, that they may not teach you to do according to all their abominable practices, that they have done for their gods, and so you sin against the Lord your God. It was God who chose that they should destroy the people there, not the Israelites. Israel did not get to keep anything from the Canaanites. This is not a war or conquest of Israel going against another country. This is not a country versus country war. This is not just war. This isn't anything like that because it is God who is doing the conquering and they don't get to even keep the spoils of war. This isn't for them. The land is for them that God is giving them, but that's because of the promise that God gave to Abraham. All of the things of the people of Canaan were devoted to the Lord. It's they were, it is called harem. It is something that is, that is banned to keep. You cannot keep anything from any of these people. In normal warfare, somebody would go through and conquer, and they would take everything. They would take the animals and the possessions. And after they killed all of the men of war, they would take all of the people left in the city, and they would do whatever they wanted with them. 
often a fate much worse than death. But God commanded them, and we see that very clearly in verse 18. But you keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them and you take any of the devoted things and make the and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. These things are not for Israel, they're for the Lord. They're set aside for destruction, for God's holiness. This, these are not their spoils of war, they're God's spoils of war. And we'll see how this comes up uh, in the next chapters as people disobey. What, what is the result of not obeying this? We also see that this is not just this is not regular warfare because the Canaanites are not being killed because Israel is righteous and deserves their land but because of their rank and wicked sin. God speaks further on this in Deuteronomy 9 verses 4 and 5. He says, "Do not say in your heart after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you, it is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. Whereas it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. Not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess their land. But because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is driving them out from before you. And that he may confirm the word the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. This was not a pleasant place to live. This wasn't a place where people were just going on their merry way and just, oh no, the terrible Israelites came and ruined everything. It was a vile and murderous place. God describes in the law, we read in Leviticus, all of these, these, what we think of as insane prohibitions. Why would you even have to talk about this? Why would you have to say, no, don't do that? Who would even think of doing that? It's because the people in the land of Canaan were already living like that, practicing that. It was a way of life. It was what they chose to do and chose not to punish or prohibit. After a terrible list of things that were very perverse, that I won't go into all the, the details in Leviticus 18, but most of it is concerned with sexuality and incest and adultery. And in the middle of this, there's a prohibition against child sacrifice. This is one of the big things that happened in Canaan. That they were devoting their children to their gods. And what makes it more despicable is that this sacrifice mentioned is in a list of purely sexual sins. Which leads us to believe that what they were doing to their children was worse than just killing them. The Lord says to Israel at the end of this chapter, Do not make yourselves unclean by any of these things. 
For by all these, the nations I am driving out before you have become unclean, and the land became unclean, so that I, so that I punished its iniquity, and the land vomited out its inhabitants. It's not because Israel is so great. It is not because Israel deserves their land. This is not a war between Israel and Canaan. This is God's just judgment for sin. God is not suspending or rejecting any of his commandments. This is not a rejection of do not kill, do not murder. This is his enforcement of that command. Because these people have so far rejected any semblance of the common grace that ought to be there. Secondly, we see that God's justice is terrifying, but it is also patient and gracious. There was truly no living thing left alive except for Rahab and her household. But it wasn't just that somebody did something wrong once and then judgment came immediately. They were already sinful when God promised the land to Abraham. And in Genesis 15, he says that I'm not giving it to you yet because the sin of the Amorites has not yet been fulfilled. He says in, in, in four generations, and we see as it happens in 400 years, that his children will, will return and take the land. And in all of that time, despite having lived among their forefathers and seeing what God has done, there is no repentance. There is no change. Only a growing worse and worse and worse. 400 years is a long time. That is a very patient waiting for judgment. And we also see in the book of Joshua that God is gracious. Yes, the command is there that, that, that is terrible and awful to hear, but everyone who seeks rescue in God finds it. Rahab was the only person who sought rescue in this town. Yes, they were all afraid, but none of them cried out to Yahweh. None of them went to the Israelites except Rahab. Rahab sought to be rescued. She sought mercy. She sought to worship the Lord. And she was rescued. In the future chapters, we'll read about the Gibeonites, who are the only other people who sought to be rescued from this terrible fate, and they were rescued too. There's more to say on that, but it appears that everybody who seeks refuge finds it. Yes, the judgment is severe, but the God who is delivering it is gracious. Thirdly, it must be clear that God must eliminate sin in order for him to be considered good and holy. People will read this and say, how can a good God 
command that someone be killed. But the Bible teaches us that from Adam's first sin, sin has been reigning in the human race ever since. Romans 3 tells us that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 5 says that we are all sinners under sin, under Adam, who are not in Christ. Romans 6 tells us that the penalty of sin is death. And this is a difficult concept. People don't understand. It doesn't seem appropriate that death would be the result of sin. But sin is very much like a disease, much like COVID-19 that shows up differently in different people. I remember when, when we were first, uh, when it was first emerging, I read the list of symptoms and I got, I mean, at the time it was overwhelming. I was like, there's so many possible symptoms. It could be anything. There's like 15 different types of symptoms and you could have some or all or none of them. Looking at the list now seems a little bit normal just because it's been so long. But it shows up different in different people. You, have, you see different symptoms, and they appear in different degrees. But sin, though it is similar in that it is diff- shows up differently and shows up in different degrees... It is very different in that it has a 100% fatality rate. Everyone has the same end result if we have the disease of sin. And that's because the same disease that brings about things that we think of as little, like lies or internal lust or greed brings the same sort of sins. This is the same disease as the Machiavellian manipulations that we see as the same sin as the same disease as sexual assault and theft and oppression. The same disease that brings anger, covetousness and pride Things that we think, oh, why would that be punished? Brings genocide and human trafficking, wicked prejudice and tyranny. We may not look exactly the same, but this disease is present in us and has no place in God's creation or his kingdom. For God to be good, this disease must be utterly eliminated. It cannot exist. Accusers say that God cannot be good because people suffer and die, but the reality is that suffering and death comes from mankind. Our sin through Adam brought death and pain and suffering into the world. It is we who murder who war and oppress, who neglect and cheat and manipulate. It is we who fill God's air with pollution, who fill God's ocean with a giant continent of garbage. This is 
probably not what he had in mind when he said to fill the earth. Yet God has been patient with us. All guilty, infected with the same disease. And while this disease of wickedness rages throughout generation after generation around the whole world, he has devised a cure in Jesus Christ. And he has applied it to those that he he's applying it to those that he has chosen for himself. I hope it is clear that God cannot allow this sin to rage on and continue in any form as it spreads and destroys the source of pain and death. And yet there's another question that is often brought up. What about the children? Everybody, young and old, in the city of Jericho is put to death. What about the children? We know from Scripture that God loves children. In Mark 10, we see Jesus defending the little ones being brought to him. It says, people were bringing little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them, but the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant. He said to them, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly, I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And he took the children in his arms and placed his hands on them and blessed them. God loves children. He shows them a love and honor beyond anything that mankind shows them. We also read in our confession, the Westminster Confession of Faith, in chapter 10, speaking of when infants die. It says, elect infants, dying in infancy, are regenerated and saved by Christ. Now, we don't know, we don't know who are elect. We don't know God's sovereign will in these things, whether he would elect Canaanite children. But knowing of this terrible disease of sin, its need to be eradicated, and also God's gracious election of the undeserving and his love for little children, we can be confident that he is just and merciful. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? To summarize what we've said before, this is God's just judgment on sin, not merely a war between nations that he is giving an okay to. They're not getting a free pass to be bad today. No, they are performing his justice on his behalf. He was patient and kind and saved all who repented. And he is good and holy to execute judgment because sin must be eliminated. Praise God that he has been so patient that some sinners would receive his mercy. Now what we have been discussing is largely not the main message of the text that we just read, but it's a necessary thing to discuss. 
We need a mature knowledge of sin and God's judgment, or else confusion and doubt seep in and destroy. And it should be clear from our previous analysis that this is not a story about how God defeats our personal enemies. He's not here to to knock down our personal Jericho. Right? Because that wasn't Israel's intention. It wasn't their goal. It wasn't their choice. He sent them on a mission. That's why the walls came down. This is showing God's great and awful power of judgment. His justice. How he will rid the world of sin and death once and for all. His great mercy will rescue all who repent. As we see with Rahab and her family. There were uh, scholars who were trying to use this uh, and reinterpret it to their personal political advantage. um, uh, A sort of theology based in Marxism and just basically trying to further their political opinion. And the the theologian Meredith Klein read uh, this liberation theology and he responded in this way. He said, to identify the redemptive kingdom of God of the Hebrews with the common causes of the city of man is a profaning of the holy, a prostitution of the gospel, a diabolical repudiation of the atonement accomplished by Jesus Christ. And I would say this equally applies to any who would use this passage as a sort of incantation to try to invoke God to their personal political agenda as well. This wasn't God trying to fight for Israel's political agenda, giving them a land that they thought was theirs. This was Israel being God's vehicle of judgment, the sword wielded in his hand. This is what points us to Christ and what Christ will come and do as he rids the world of sin and death. He is the true Israel. Paul speaks of the promises of Abraham, and he says that they were for Abraham and his offspring, not offsprings, because his offspring was the one singular Christ. That's what Paul says in Galatians 13. This is pointing us and reframing all of these promises and who Israel was and what God used them for and says it is, it is Christ who is the real promised one. He is the true Israel. All promises are fulfilled in him and through him. And if Israel under Joshua was an instrument of such judgment, of that cleansing fire over Canaan and Jericho, how much more the true Israel? We are told that he will come like a thief in the night. His legions of angels will surround the strongholds of men. 
Christ will come down on the clouds with great power and glory. And then his angels will release a loud trumpet call as they gather his elect. At the sound of that trumpet, what do you expect will be left standing? No false gods, no cynical arguments, no self-righteousness. In fact, no Christian, no Muslim, no Buddhist, no atheist. For every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord of all. That disease of sin will be defeated. Death and hell will be cast into the lake of fire. And there will be no sorrow or pain or death anymore for those who trust in him. For those who, like Rahab, saw the coming judgment and worshipped the Lord. As this passage closes, we see Joshua pronouncing a curse on anyone who would rebuild the city of Jericho. He says, At the cost of his firstborn shall he lay its foundation, and at the cost of his youngest son shall he set up its gates. Joshua pronounced this curse because Jericho stood as a symbol of rebellion against God, of people who would worship the false gods, who would sacrifice their children, who would engage in these terrible and murderous lifestyles in the face of the Holy One. And so to rebuild this city would be to rebuild what God has torn down, the terrible sin that he is punishing and defeating and taking away. And we see in 1 Kings 16 that actually a man of Israel does rebuild this. And his first and last sons are killed. But this yet again points us to Christ still. Because all of us are guilty of the sin of rebellion against God. Of building strongholds of sin in our hearts. And it was only by the mercy of God who sent his one and only son, his first and last son, to die on the cross for our sins dying the death that we should die so that we may meet him in glory when that trumpet sounds on the last day. So with thanksgiving and joy, let's go to him in prayer. Lord, we confess that we do not understand the deep things within you. We do not understand all of your mysteries and knowledge, but Lord, we pray for understanding enough to serve you wholeheartedly with joy and peace, to speak your truth to those who question, to bring comfort to those who need comforting, and to call to repentance those who rebel. Lord, we pray that your truth would be planted in us, 
that we would be conformed more into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ, our only Savior. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.